Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. How many of you have heard this phrase being said on the news, in magazines, or by friends of yours? Religion is the cause of every problem in the world. That is a fallacy. And we need to know that as we start rebuilding our church, we need to recognize that we are not the problem, we are the solution. And we need to be proud of our church, proud of the gospel, proud of Jesus, even though we're all sinners saved by grace and we have many failings, we're not the cause of the world's problems. Bertrand Russell is a British philosopher, and he blames the church for everything. He says, you find as you look around the world that every single bit of progress in humane feeling Every improvement in the criminal law, every step towards the diminution of war, a diminution of war, every step towards better treatment of the colored races, or every mitigation of slavery, every moral progress that there has been in the world, he says this, has been consistently opposed by the organized churches of the world. I say quite deliberately that the Christian religion as organized in its churches has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in the world. Really, Bertie? (laughs) But it gets worse. These intelligent people. And you know the most intelligent are actors. They know everything. Bill Murray. Religion is the worst enemy of mankind. No single war in the history of humanity has killed as many people as religion has. Really, Bill? But wait, it gets worse. George Carr, yet another actor who knows everything. More people have been killed in the name of God than for any other reason. Gosh. And then we have Karl Marx, but we expect it from him. The first requisite for the people's happiness is the abolition of religion. Golly. You know, religion has been said to be to blame for all the evils in the world, but that's not true at all. And the evidence doesn't support it. Just think of this for a moment. Go right back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 20. When you go to fight against the city, it says, first approach the city and make terms of peace. So your first course of action is not fighting, it's peace. Jesus added to that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers. And you can't blame Christianity for the offshoots, the the strange popes that emerged during history, and some of the crazy stuff that goes on for the church as a whole. You can't blame us for the snake handlers, the doom sprayers, and the grass eaters. Can you say amen? And the sexual predators. No, that's not God's church. That's fallen men. And sinners exist everywhere, sadly. But God loves the church and he used his church and is using his church to bring change to the world. And a lot of what we take for granted, the church has actually instituted. Do you know what has caused wars in the world? Two things, and we see it in South Africa. Greed and unchecked power. People want without working. People want by grabbing. And then people want unchecked power. Threaten their, even in a democracy, say something and you get locked up. Come on now. So let's not blame the church. Let's support the church. And uh, here's, here's some evidence here. Rabbi Alan Lurie, before I give you the title of the message, he wrote an article called, Is Religion the Cause of Most Wars? And I want you to listen to this. He says, history simply does not support the hypothesis that religion is the major cause of conflict. The wars of the ancient world were really, if ever, based 
on religion. In their book, Encyclopedia of Wars, authors Charles Phillips and Alan Axelrod document the history of recorded warfare, and from their list of 1,763 wars, only 123 have been classified to involve a religious cause, accounting for less than 7% of all wars and less than 2% of all people killed in warfare. While, for example, he goes on to add, honestly, it is estimated that approximately 1 to 3 million people were tragically killed in the Crusades and perhaps 3,000 during the Inquisition, nearly 55 million soldiers and civilians died in the senseless and secular slaughter of World War I alone. It's amazing when you put it into perspective, eh? I want to speak to you today about how the church has changed the world. So that you can rebuild in your thinking the value of the church, the value that you bring, the value that we bring, and how the world has been influenced and changed by the church. Jesus and his church have impacted the world for good. Don't believe otherwise. And Jesus, in the short 33 years of his life, did amazing miracles, did amazing things, rose from the dead, and then his followers have changed the entire course of history. Just three years of ministry and 33 years old, he had a massive impact. John chapter 21 reminds us, it says Jesus did many other things as well, other than what you read in the Bible. Notice that many other things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Pretty powerful verse, that. And so we only know a fraction, but the implications and the results of Christians being converted and saved, and the influence in the world has changed our world. You'll remember in the book of Acts, and we won't read it all, but uh, Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, and as he preached, some people responded, some noble people responded, some educated people got saved, but then they found a mob that began to freak out, and they wanted to grab uh, them from Jason's house and drag them into the street, and this is what they said. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Think of this. They've turned the world upside down. Well, you know why? They did turn the world upside down, but here's the thing. The world was upside down. And when they turned it upside down, they turned it right side up. But we have changed. We have literally turned the world upside down. And Jesus, when he came, changed everything. I love what this historian Philip Schaff said. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set some pens in motion, and furnish themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. You see, what we forget, and I'll get to the message. This is not the message. This is just the beginning. We're going to look at 13 things that the world has been changed by. But I want to say this, because it's important to understand the context. Do you know that the Greco-Roman world at the time of Jesus and the time of his disciples was a debauched place? People were doing unbelievably bad things. It was pagan, it was violent, it was depraved, it was debauched. And hence we refer to the fall of the Roman Empire. Because of all that, it collapsed. 
And uh, Christianity changed that culture and brought complete change to the world, and it resulted in human progress, which we often ignore and forget. In the area of science, technology, medicine, fine arts, law, literature, architecture, music, philanthropy, philosophy, ethics, theater, education, and business, if you can think of anything else. We have been told that Christians are anti-science. That's not true. In fact, listen to this. In a book called 100 Years of Nobel Prizes by Baruch Shalev, he says a review of Nobel Prizes awarded between 1901 and 2000 reveals that 65.4% of Nobel Prize laureates identified Christianity in its various forms as their religious preference. They looked at a, at a, from a biblical worldview, from a creation point of view, yet they were scientists. And uh, Dr. Rodney Stark, professor of sociology, adds to this. He says the leading scientific figures in the 16th and 17th centuries, and there's a whole list of them, overwhelmingly were devout Christians who believed it was their duty to comprehend God's handiwork. Now, before I get into the meat of the message, you know, Christianity changed so many things that we take for granted that we don't even realize it. We think it's humanism and socialism and communism and all these isms and the modern-day thinking, you know, the new age. But did you know Christianity, when it came, it changed the way the Roman world operated in even burying their dead. They used to cremate their dead. So did the American Indians. But when the gospel began to be preached that the body was valuable, that there was resurrection, we began to do burials. And Charlemagne the Great issued a decree that no more cremations were to be done. And they continued not cremating but burying people until the 1800s when the philosophy came out again that there's no, no, no God, there's no resurrection, man is his own destiny, and then cremation began again. It wasn't because of a shortage of space. Interesting how, now listen, if you have uh, cremated your relatives or planning on cremation, you need to do a biblical study. Just remember that in Genesis 50, Joseph said to his brothers, uh, remember to take my bones with you when you leave Egypt. So burial is preferable, but you won't not be resurrected if you cremate. But just interesting how all these factors influence life. And you can think they're just secular, but they have a powerful effect on everything we do. Daniel Webster, the politician, said this. He said, all that is best in the civilization of today is the fruit of Christ's appearance among men. Even the fact that we believe that there's no such thing as innate good we're going backwards again. People believe, oh, you're essentially good. It's poverty that causes you to be bad. Christianity teaches no one is absolutely good. That's why you can't have a government with absolute power. It comes from a Christian view. That there's absolute right and wrong is a Christian view. We're moving away from that today. You can call the wall white even though it's black. And everybody's like, yeah. <laughs> well, you can go insane. I am not. And I will call things what they actually are. Did you know that even forgiveness and reconciliation comes from the church? It doesn't come from the Roman, Greco-Roman times. Uh, Kenneth Woodward, Newsweek editor and author, said this, and I'll get to the message. By any secular standard, Jesus is also the dominant figure of Western culture. Like the millennium itself, much of what we now think of as Western ideas, inventions and values finds its source and inspiration in the religion that worships God in His name. Art and science, the self and society, politics and economics, marriage and the family, right and wrong, body and soul, all have been touched and often radically transformed by the Christian influence. 
I'm going to give you 13 historical benefits that Christianity brought to the world, but I want you to realize this first. God is behind all these things. And before I give you point one, Isaiah 41 and verse 4 in the Good News Bible says, Who has determined the course of history? I, the Lord, was there at the beginning, and I, the Lord, will be there at the end. This world seems like it's out of control, but God still works through his church. And Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew chapter 16, and the gates of hell, the powers of hell, will not prevail against it. You need to love your church, support your church, believe in your church, and be proud of your church, because through Jesus and the church, the world has been forever changed. Let's look at 13 things, and you can use your camera if you need to. Number one, one of the greatest benefits brought to the world through the church and through Jesus is the sanctity of human life. The Romans devalued life and didn't value the body. They saw it as evil. But Christians value human beings and the value of life. We believe we've been made a little bit lower than the angels. It comes from the Old Testament view of us, Psalm 139. And then the fact that God loves us and will resurrect us and we need to preserve life. Thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20. Love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, Elvin J. Smith wrote a wonderful book called How Christianity Changed the world, and I've read some six of these books uh, from different authors. I couldn't quote them all, but he says this. He says, like their Jewish ancestors, speaking of Christians, they saw human beings as the crown of God's creation. They believed that man was made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27, and that that image was tarnished by man's fall into sin. They nevertheless believed the words of the psalmist to be true. You made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, Psalm 8 verse 5. They also knew that God so honored human life that he himself assumed it by becoming incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Thus, he says, unlike the Romans, Christians did not hold human life to be cheap and expendable. That's why slavery existed in the Roman Empire, and uh, it's so important for us to understand that Christianity elevated the value of human life. Secondly, number two, Christianity abolished infanticide. The Romans, like us today, saved the birds but killed their babies. And abortion was common. Kids were not valued. Christians came along and started homes for children, homes for babies, orphanages, the disabled, and we'll look at that a bit later. But Frederick Farrar wrote a book called The Early Days of Christianity, and he said infanticide was infamously universal among the Greeks and the Romans during the early years of Christianity. Infants were killed for various reasons. Those born deformed or physically frail were especially prone to being willfully killed, often by drowning or were killed more brutally. Cicero justified infanticide, at least for the deformed, by citing the 12 tables of Roman's law, Roman law which he says that deformed adults shall be killed. It was written into their law. And large families were rare. The Greco-Roman society, in part because of infanticide, girls were especially vulnerable, and birth control and abortion, rather, was common. In fact, Alvin J. Smith, in his book, says this. He says, when, when Paul, the apostle, wrote to the Galatians, he listed a whole list of sins of the flesh, and one of them is the word pharmakia, Interesting word from which we get the word pharmacy, dispensing or mixing of drugs. That at that time was essentially not sniffing cocaine or heroin or smoking dope like we know today. It was more the dispensing of potions for dealing with issues. 
sorcery or witchcraft, it's translated in certain Bibles. And he says that was common because whenever you fell pregnant, because they didn't have condoms and birth control, you could get rid of the baby by pharmakia, and he considered that a sin. In the book of Revelation, John, writing to the churches, uses the word in the plural, pharmakois, speaking of the fact there, sexual immorality, he says, and then straight after he mentions it in the plural, in other words, don't commit sexual immorality and then use potions to get rid of children. The church must get with the program. No, no, the world must adopt the church's program. We believe in Bible values. And we don't want to go back to Greco-Roman times and destroy children. The Christianity destroyed infanticide and removed it from the face of the earth. Number three, Christianity elevated the status of women. Many people say Christianity oppresses women. No, no, it's insecure men who oppress women, not Christianity. Are you with me? During Roman times and Greek times, women had low status. They were kept uneducated. They had no rights and they were even property. The Roman law called manus, M-A-N-U-S, meant that a man owned a woman, could do to her what he liked, beat her, he could rape her, he could even kill her, and there were no consequences in the law. And a woman had no independence at all. In fact, Pliny the Younger, who advised Trajan, the emperor, said to the emperor, you know what I've noticed? I've noticed among Christians that there are people, he says, of every age and rank and even both sexes are treated equally. And he said, I met two slave women who claimed to be deaconesses. This is the first decade of the first century. Christianity elevated women. In fact, the New Testament, you'll see Jesus, he constantly is dealing with women. In the gospel accounts, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus engages her and shows her respect, and she's shocked. The anointing of Mary at Bethany, Jesus allowed that to take place and engaged with women. Mary and Martha were his friends. The widow at Nain, he raised her son. And on and on it goes through Scripture. Mary Magdalene was delivered of demons. Jesus paid attention to his mother at the cross. And uh, it's a completely different view of women that the New Testament presents. Christians don't oppress women except when they're insecure. Dr. James Kennedy is a great man, was a great man of God, written a number of very good books. He wrote a book called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And he says, life was expendable prior to Christianity's influence. In those days, abortion was rampant, abandonment was commonplace. It was common for infirm babies or unwanted little ones to be taken out into the forest or into the mountainside to be consumed by wild animals or to starve. They often abandoned female babies because women were considered inferior. Jesus comes along. There's the New Testament. You see Paul, and he's got two women on his team, Udio and Syntyche. You can read about that in the book of Philippians. They were people on the ministry team with equal status. Phoebe was a deaconess in the church at St. Crea in Romans chapter 16. You find women in prayer, and Paul joins them and supports them. You find a businesswoman that Paul spends time with, Lydia, in the book of Acts. And we find people that Jesus appears to after, how's this? Jesus appears to women after the resurrection. They didn't believe women as witnesses in court. Can you believe that? If you brought a woman to court, they'd say, take her out of here. So Jesus says, I'm going to appear to women. And they're going to testify about my resurrection. Amazing thing. And then you find in the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's mentioned before Aquila, yet they were both Bible teachers. So we take one verse that says, I'd suffer women not to teach. It, doesn't, it means teach without authority and teach without uh, some man 
having authority over her and, and guiding her in the teaching of the word. Because women can be more emotional than men, and teaching needs to be rationally sound, not emotionally not you know, emotionally understood. So we need to understand the Bible properly. Christianity elevated the status of women. I can't talk more about that now. Number four, the banning of gladiatorial contests. You say, what the heck does that matter? <laughs> so that happened in Santon somewhere. Oh, great. Do you know how many people died at gladiatorial contests? And it was because the emperors were converted to Christianity that there was a knock-on effect. They valued human life. They no longer threw the infirm or the poor or the disabled and disadvantaged into the arena for sport. They respected even broken human life. And it was the Christian emperors who changed it. Do you know the gladiatorial contests were so vicious that up to 10,000 men and animals could die over the period of four weeks of celebration? It used to be like, like our Christmas. They used to celebrate by killing people. Up to 10,000, the blood of the Colosseum ran red. And that's why it stands as a monument today as a tourist attraction because of the church. Victorian W.E.H. W. Leckie, he said there's scarcely any single reform so important in the moral history of mankind as the suppression of the gladiatorial shows, a feat that must be almost exclusively ascribed to the Christian church. Most of you in the room wouldn't have known that, but our world is different because of the church and its influence. Number five, care for the poor, sick, widows, and orphans. You know, they never cared about the sick. They never cared about the infirm, widows, and orphans. They just abandoned them. But Christians started orphanages and homes for the poor, and it was based on James chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 25. Let me read them to you. James 2, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? You see, Christians come along like the Rivers Foundation and feeds thousands of people week after week, month after month. We run 10 orphanages. We pay for their support. That's what a Christian heart does. Are you with me? We are not here to gain power and prestige and status and to enrich the pastors. We're here to serve the world. And that's at Jesus' command. Even a prostitute called Afra of Augsburg in the third century, she was on the streets and was a prostitute in a pagan life. And then as she got converted, her life completely changed. And instead of just becoming a normal woman, she started a ministry to abandon children, prisoners, thieves, smugglers, pirates, and runaway slaves. And it was mental asylum started by Christians in AD 321, homes for the blind in AD 630, and aged homes in AD 400. The church has played its part very wonderfully. Alvin Smith says this, he says, the charity encouraged by biblical teachings eventually blossomed into hospitals, orphanages, homes for the elderly, and care for the poor, the hungry, and the homeless. You'll remember Jesus said this in Matthew 25, and I need to go fast here because I've got a lot of content. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, a very interesting word in the original language, and I'll come to it in a moment, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Do you know it was Christians who started orphanages way back? And then you'll remember George Muller in the 1800s when Bristol, the streets of London and Bristol in England were filled with street urchins and children on the streets and in filthy conditions, unsanitary conditions, he, by faith, without asking for donations, ended up looking after 17,000 orphans. Just on people used to leave stuff at the door, donations, and he used to get on his knees and pray, and then he opened the door and there'd be milk. 
17, listen, 17,000 orphans were cared for from the 1800s until 1950. Why did it stop in 1950? Because the UK government says we can do a better job than the church. And so social dependence was created in America and in the UK. And as a result today, we have entitlement, people wanting to be given stuff by government when it was never government's job. It's always been the church's job. Very important facts here, church. You know, the first hospital was built in AD 369, and some of you will remember going there with me. Keenan, were you with us on this trip? Yeah, we filmed in Cappadocia. This is in Turkey. You go into these, it looks like molehills. That's the first hospital. It goes down eight stories underground where the church hid. There are churches there. We went and filmed there and did a documentary there. That's the first hospital, AD 369. The Benedictine monks then picked up the, the role, and every single Benedictine host, uh, um, monastery had a what they called an infirmary in it. As a result, later on, there were across the world 37,000 monasteries that were caring for the sick. Now, let me get back to the word stranger. You remember the word stranger? We read it in Matthew's Gospel. It means this, hospice, from which we get the word hospital. A lot of stuff we do today has its roots in the church. Florence Nightingale, she went through the Crimean War and improved sanitary conditions, ended up opening a nursing school. Her nursing methods have impacted the entire world. The world has her to thank for nursing methods that we experience today. And then caring for widows, it started in the book of Acts chapter 6 when the Grecian widows were not being looked after. Number six. You still with me? Um, you know, a lot of this is ascribed to humanist causes and politics but it's not politics that can solve the world's problems. It's the church sticking to what the church should do and preach. See, the minute socialism and social programs came in, it didn't help our world. We've got people now in the modern world crying for socialism and communism, things that have murdered millions of people when instead it should be a Christian view of life. And I'll come to other things. Number six, it eradicated human sacrifice and cannibalism. These things didn't just fade out. People used to offer their children as human sacrifices to please the gods, and the Greeks and the Romans were famous for doing this. But the Bible elevates human life, elevates the value of children, and uh, Christians in improved cultures everywhere they went, brought manners and behavior and taught the value of a person, and they eradicated cannibalism across the world, which was rife in the South Sea Islands, in Papua New Guinea, places in Africa. And uh, stories told of a man who visited one of the South Sea Islands during World War II, a soldier. And uh, as he was walking along, he came across an African man, one of the natives of the island, carrying a Bible. And so the American soldier said to him, you know, in educated countries like the USA, we no longer believe in that book. He said, the native looked back at him and said to him, it's just as well we believe in this book, otherwise our people here would eat you. <laughs> you see, you don't realize the impact this has had on the world. People are consuming each other. Christianity brought the dignity of each individual soul in life. In India, when a woman, uh, sorry, when a man, a husband died, they put him on the funeral pyre, they had a tradition called sati where the wife would have to join him because the people didn't want to look after her. She's now all on her own. He's dead. He's not bringing, you got no value. You just climb on with him and you get burnt with him. 
So practice had continued until the gospel went to India, sort of changing the cultural values. In, in Africa, when a chief died, they'd kill his wife and the mistresses or the concubines. They'd kill them off because they had no value and they were used. When Christianity came and the gospel was preached, didn't bring oppression and bras, brought liberation and value for women and value for people. I thought I'd just throw that in. So tired of hearing history twisted to make the church look bad. We are rebuilding, and you need to rebuild here if you're going to rebuild out there. Can you say amen? Number seven, the seventh point. Some of you didn't think I'd get this far, but I will finish. Number seven, the eradication of child labor. Child labor, children were abused and used to clean pots and gun shells, and with these small little fingers, they were sent down into mines on ropes. But Anthony Ashley Cooper, otherwise known as the Seventh Earl of Shaftesbury was the proponent of removing or improving firstly and then removing labor laws. He was a committed Christian. In fact, Charles Spurgeon knew him well. And Charles Spurgeon from England said this of him. He said, a man so firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so intensely active in the cause of God and man, I have never known. And he went to Parliament and spoke and did speeches, made personal sacrifices through his pleadings and his persistence. Labor laws were changed, and eventually child labor was banned in mills and in factories and in mines in 1833. And then some of the other countries of the world started following England. It took nearly 100 years before the, the USA in 1938 finally did away with child labor. Can you believe it? And this Christian man led the way, and some people say that Karl Marx was the one who did away with child labor. Let me tell you, it was not Karl Marx. It was Lord Shaftesbury, because at the time those laws were passed, Karl Marx was 15 years old. And let me just add this, seeing I know history. <laughs> Karl Marx never did a day's work in his life, yet he's the so-called champion of the worker. I'd prefer someone who's done some work to tell us how we should change the whole system. He lived off a rich friend who supported him and fed him while he wrote his weird ideas down that the whole world's running after. Just a thought. Some of you say stick to the Bible. I am. <laughs> Number eight. You know, what I, you know what I want you to do? I don't just want you to hear my pen. I want you to think. Because if you watch CNN and you watch the news of the world and you watch what the culture is saying, they will bend your head. And they will get you to believe we're bad and we've caused all the problems. Instead, we're the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. Change lives, bring a changed world. Number eight, you all know this, the abolition of slavery. William Wilberforce worked for it again in England as a Christian, committed Christian, lobbied parliament, spoke up, was hated by business people. The world was invested in slavery. And finally, in 1833, across all England's colonies, slavery was abolished. It was rife throughout the world. It didn't just start in America. It was rife across the whole world. In fact, it took the world a long time to get rid of it. And just let me remind you, slavery existed from very early times because the Old Testament, some of the early laws of the Old Testament are about slavery, how to treat slaves. And then Israel was slaves themselves for 400 years. And then slavery was abolished uh, in, um, in 1833, 32 years later, America abolished slavery. It took them 32 years. It, this, this has been a tough one, but listen to this. I was reading here about slavery. It was only abolished in Iran in 1929, in Saudi Arabia and Yemen in 1962, and in Amman in 1970. That's the other day. 
Slavery didn't just start in America, some people proclaim. Slavery has been a worldwide problem, and it's the church that always works to bring human dignity and to elevate life. Fernand Brodel is a French historian, and he said throughout the history of the West, Christianity has been at the heart of the civilization it inspires, even when it has allowed itself to be captured or deformed by it. In other words, the church has has done some harm, but mostly it's done good. Number nine, better mental and physical health is what the church brought to the world. So what do you mean? Well, yeah, you see the Greco-Roman era and prior to that, they viewed human beings as expendable matter of no worth created by the gods. And uh, as we looked at in Docetism when we were doing 1 John, matter was evil and God was good, so human beings weren't valued. But suddenly along comes the church and says, no, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. He bought you with a price. Jesus uh, died on the cross to purchase you, so you must be valuable. So suddenly people start eating better, thinking better, feeling better. Doctors and hospitals and nursing all come from the church. The value of life. People start reading about uh, how uh, Christian, uh, biblical diet rather, and uh, start looking after the body. By the way, the word holidays comes from the Christian word holy days. It doesn't come from some labor act where we all need a rest. No, it comes from the Christian thing that there's certain days other than the Sabbath which we should stop and think of God and celebrate. Christian concepts. Lest we give credit where credit is not due. And church is good for you. Did you know that? Listen to this. The Secular Creed, a very good book if you get a chance to read it by Rebecca McLachlan. She says, people are five times less likely to commit suicide if they attend church. Women 68% less likely to die deaths of despair, suicide, overdose, or alcohol. And men 33% less likely. People complain about tithing and giving in church. We should charge you. (laughs) If you're visiting, that's just a joke. Can you understand the value? By you being here today, you're improving your mental health. Because you're hearing positive, you're hearing the teaching of God's Word, you're getting filled with hope, you're meeting with other people who love you. The church has tremendous value. Number 10, the sanctity of marriage. Is this helping you today? The sanctity of marriage. Roman authors during the period when Jesus and the church first emerged said that that society was was so promiscuous and depraved and sexual activity between men and women had reached a low and then Christians appeared. Homosexuality between men was common and especially with boys. Boys were vulnerable and you'll see it on their pottery. If you do a research, I couldn't show, don't even look on the screen, it's not there. If you look at the pottery that is numerous across museums, it depicts homosexual sex as though it was a normative thing. The church changed that. And today we're wanting to go back to Greco-Roman times as though they were better. No, God has designed man and woman to be in marriage. Marriage should be honored, it says in Hebrews 13. And the marriage bed undefiled. And as a result of marriage being elevated, the sanctity of marriage produced security for women. Faithfulness, purity. The children grew up in a place of stability. We're taught manners. Marriage is not just a place to express your feelings. It's a place where you build society. We have so far lost everything that God has intended, and we like going back to primitive culture. G. Campbell Morgan, the preacher, said this. He said, everything that is worthwhile in the morality of today 
has come to the world through Christ. Dismiss his standards of right and wrong and try to draw up your own ethical code and see where you will be. You can see where we will be. Number 11. Are you still with me? The concept of human equality, and I'll do these, two, these three quickly. The concept of human equality. People were not equal. All societies, especially India, you have the caste system. In Roman society, you had the rich and the poor. If you were poor, no one even took your word as, as truth. Even you, you could be in the right, you could have witnesses, but a rich person could speak against you. The book of James deals with that. You read in the scriptures often, the rich take you to court. It's because we lived in an unequal society when Jesus came. And then Christianity said, let us do good to all men, Galatians chapter 6. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Human, human equality was elevated, and it wasn't always uh, uh, got right, but it was something that was elevated. Professor Howard Tumber uh, says this. He's written books on, on, on human rights and on Christianity. He says, human rights is not a universal doctrine, but it is the descendant of one particular religion, Christianity. This does not su suggest Christianity has been superior in its practice, has not had its share of human rights abuses. So we've got it wrong sometimes, but Christianity was the one that elevated human dignity. Number 12, this is important. There are two more. The dignity of work and labor. Before Christianity entered the world, work was seen as a grind, an unnecessary thing. If you could steal and get away with it, you were clever. But work, the Bible introduces work as a calling, as man created in the image of God to make a difference in the world and to add value. And to also grow himself by working. It's not our oh, I oh, so off to work I go. Are you with me? It was Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who first promoted that children or taught the scriptures and a trade because work was seen as so valuable. We don't have time to read, but Colossians chapter 3, you can read there about working as unto the Lord. So you don't work purely to bring in money, you work in order to improve yourself improve the world, and also, listen very carefully, to create financial freedom and independence and own private property. Economic freedom is a Christian concept, not a socialist concept. Socialism does not give you freedom to have private property, but the church bought that right, and uh, we need to focus on the Bible, because the Bible is the answer to our culture. I mean, you know, the corruption problems in our country are not going to be solved because you lock people away. It's going to be solved when hearts are changed. The wonderful Indian author, Vishnal Mangalwadi, said this, The Bible is the only force known to history that has freed entire nations from corruption while simultaneously giving them political freedom. We need to recognize the church played a valuable role. It's changed everything. You know, some of the things you take for granted. Frederick Froebel was the guy that invented kindergarten. That's not something that is in the modern world. Kindergarten, a garden where you grow children before they go to school. Stuff you take for granted. Isn't that true? And Martin Luther was the one who said children need to go to compulsory school in order to play their part in the world. These are not modern day things that we think have come through politics. These are things the Bible teachers and Christians have taught. And lastly, number 13, you didn't think I'd get there. The assurance of salvation and life after death. You know that before Jesus, people didn't know if they were going to heaven. Even Jews didn't know. They hoped they kept the Ten Commandments and God let them into heaven. But assurance came when Jesus died on the cross. He gave us the gift of eternal life, assured us of forgiveness of sins, 
rose from the dead himself, showing us that we could rise from the dead. And so we need to see the church as a valuable thing because it has done so much good. I've touched on just a few things literally today. But I'll tell you what, if the devil can put you off Jesus and the church, he's one. We need to love the church, protect the church, value the church, and play our part in the church because the church has changed the world. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.